and to just sit. We need this. In the midst of all of the hustle and bustle of our ordinary lives, um, it's good for us to just sit and listen. And so God, I pray, would you meet us? We come from all sorts of different circumstances this week. Some of us come out of a week marked by great joy. Some of us come out of weeks marked by sorrow and sadness. God, you know, and you are eager to speak to each and every one of us this morning. So God, we're listening. We're here. We pray, open our ears. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Thanksgiving has come and gone. The Christmas season is officially here. And Christmas Day is just 24 days away, if my math is right. And as a church, as families, as individuals, we want to be ready. And by ready, I'm not talking about making sure all of our shopping is done and all of the decorations are up and all of our plans for gathering with family are together as good and as important as all of those things are. By ready, I mean ready in our hearts and ready in our minds to celebrate Christmas well and rightly. I feel this obligation, I feel this every year as your pastor. I feel some measure of responsibility. I think we should feel some measure of responsibility toward one another to help one another keep Jesus very much the focus during the coming weeks. He actually is the reason for the season. So these Sundays in December, our plan is to focus our attention undistractedly, unashamedly on Him. Last Christmas, you, you may remember this, we, we did an Advent series on Sunday mornings that I entitled Early Rumblings. And we looked at several prophecies of the coming Messiah in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Well, even before there are rumblings, there are whispers. And this Christmas, I want us to look at the very earliest whispers of the coming one. From way back at the very beginning, way before Isaiah. So would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and turn to chapter 3. Now you may know this, but the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they were all written by the same guy, Moses. And throughout those books, those earliest books, there are whisperings. And if we're listening well, you can hear them. We can hear them. If we're not listening well, we'll just pass right by. We'll miss them all together. 
But there are these whispered statements designed to catch our attention, making us wonder what's going on, where is this going, and this morning I want us to hear and listen carefully to the earliest whisper of all, the first faint whisper of the coming one. You know, with every, with every story that is told, very soon after you start reading it or after you start hearing it, there's a set of questions uh, pushing kind of forward in our minds. What's it all about? Where's this going? How will this turn out? From our earliest years, we're trained by hearing stories to be thinking like that, asking those questions. And so strong is the impulse of those questions, especially with a really compelling story, that sometimes we, we cheat. And we flip over to the back of the, of the story to the end to find out how it all turns out. But usually, usually very early in the story, there's some hint, some clue about what it's all about and what's at stake. Well, the Bible is a story. And when I say story, I don't mean some made-up thing. I mean the story of what has happened, what is happening, what will happen in history. This great story that is contained in this book. I know it maybe sounds a little bit cliche. You've probably heard it before. But history is God's story. It's His story. And that story is what the Bible tells and God wants us, right from the start, to be on track about what's at stake in this story and where it's all heading. So very early on, he whispers a faint but distinct word about what this is all about and where it's going. And that's what we have here in Genesis chapter 3. In fact, let me just pause here for a second and help us get something. Very often we come to Christmas... And we focus our attention on those accounts, those wonderful accounts in the Gospels of the birth of Jesus. We read about what happened in Bethlehem on that first Christmas night. And that's good, but that can actually produce a way too narrow view of Christmas. These very familiar, strong images of, you know, the shepherds out on the hillsides, the, the crowded in, baby born in a manger... But you see, the deep meaning of what's happening there is really hard to get by just focusing on those events and the scenes of that first Christmas night. We can't fully access the significance, certainly not the full weight of the significance of what's happening there just by looking at those events. For that, we need to step back and we need to see the full story. So think about this platform up here as... From one end to the other as representing the, the great storyline of the Bible. With Genesis all the way over on that end. And then the story kind of unfolds book by book, chapter by chapter, all the way along till you get to the very other end and the book of Revelation. And we might be tempted because of those questions pushing in our minds to go to the end and see how it ends up. And if you did that, you know what you would see? you would see this absolutely stunning, glorious, powerful, majestic, noble king riding on a white horse, establishing perfect justice, perfect righteousness, perfect peace on the whole 
earth, in fact, the whole earth made new and perfect. And you'd see this king gathering a great host of people into the beautiful capital city of his kingdom. You'd see that scene in all of its amazing, just brilliant detail, and you'd have a pretty good idea that the story is about him and his victory, his success in caring for all of those people. And so, given what we know about how authors like to give some hints and clues, we might expect hints of that, that king, that victory, that triumph early in the story, which is exactly what we find in Genesis chapter 3. We don't get much here. It's not a lot of detail, but what we do, what we do here changes everything. It tells us what this story is about and where it's going, and it fills us with hope, just as it's designed to do. It fills us with wonder, just as it's designed to do, and God doesn't leave us wondering long. More whispers are coming. We'll see that over the next three weeks, and they'll fill out our understanding. They'll increase our hope, but today, let's look at this first faint whisper in Genesis chapter 3. Now, just to make sure we get this, Let's remember what has already happened so far. Genesis 1 tells us the story of creation. God created this beautiful world with this incredible place in it called Eden. It was a place of perfect beauty. Rivers, trees, gorgeous skies, everything is right. We see that summarized in the last verse of Genesis 1. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And then in chapter 2, we read of how God created Adam and Eve, and how perfectly suited the world was to them, and how perfectly suited they were to each other. Look there at the end of chapter 2. Verse 23, Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That speaks of the complete innocence before God and before each other. There was nothing in them that needed to be hidden. Not one thing weighing on their conscience at all. So you've got this perfect world and you've got this pure and innocent and happy and healthy beginnings of humanity. Everything is full of promise. Humanity is poised for an incredible existence, this unfolding of their story. But something happens. Adam and Eve outright disobey God. They arch against God's authority. It is very unsettling when you read it. And they are not the only actors in this drama. There is another being created before Adam and Eve, an angelic being, but he's very clearly evil. He is present in the form of this serpent, and he is challenging God. He's calling God's word into question. So who is this? Well, the clearest and the fullest answer is actually given near the end of the story. In the last book, in the book of Revelation... Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says this, The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, which is a direct reference back here to Genesis chapter 3, 
who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down and his angels were thrown down with him. We read the same thing a little bit later in Revelation chapter 20, verse 2. And he, this angel, seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. See, even though we're not told outright in Genesis who this is, the New Testament unmasks this person who is this serpent. And the question we just naturally ask is, how did this come to be? Where did Satan come from? I mean, in Genesis 3, he just appears. We don't know anything about him. But see, behind the scenes, in another realm, in the time before Genesis 3, something had happened, something big. There's another history that we're not told about, but later in the Bible there are references to it. You see, in in addition to that amazing creation that God had accomplished that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, God had also created other beings, spiritual beings, angels, who were created to joyfully serve him and his purposes with man. But something happened with them. Listen to Jude. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. Peter says, God did not spare angels when they sinned. You see, once before Genesis chapter 3, maybe before Genesis 2, we don't know the exact timing, at some point God created a host of holy angels. He called them into being. Just imagine that. And at some point, some of them, a good number of them, including Satan, sinned. Or as Jude puts it, they did not stay within their own position of authority. In other words, this sin was a kind of insurrection. It was a rebellion, a desire for more power, more authority than that they were appointed by God. They did not want to serve God and his purpose. And you ask, why? How could that happen? There's not an easy answer to that question. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't profess to know. But what we do know is that this one in Genesis 3 is a powerful spiritual being, already evil, already a deceiver, already intent on doing everything he can to destroy God's plan. And he gets a foothold right here. I mean, he's pushing with all of his might against the door of God's reign over the world, and he gets his foot in the door right here. He, he does so by successfully tempting Eve and then Adam. And that brings us to this ever so important verse, Genesis 3.15, where we hear this first faint whisper of a coming one. Let me read verses 14 and 15. This is God speaking words of judgment against Satan, the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat and all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Please pay attention here. He shall bruise your head and you, Satan, shall bruise his heel. So let's make sure we're getting this. I want to make sure we see this, but let's also make sure we're understanding this. There's going to be enmity. Ongoing hostility, struggle, combat that will involve pain and suffering because it's not some friendly rivalry. This is mortal combat. There will be enmity, notice, between you, Satan, and the woman, 
and between your offspring and her offspring. So there is this, this general hostility between two camps, Satan and his host and the woman and all of those who will be from her, all humanity. But then notice a very particular line of battle will emerge in this war between a particular offspring of the woman. You see that there in verse 15? That's singular, he. He shall bruise your head, and you, that's the serpent, shall bruise his heel. So the, herp, the serpent here is not just a snake. It is that ancient serpent, Satan, the devil. And the offspring here is no ordinary child. This is a special, unique offspring, a promised one. This, friends, is the very first reference in the Bible to the coming Messiah. It's the first reference to Jesus in your Bible. This seed is a particular child in the long line, the long genealogy, all of the so-and-so begat so-and-so, and then they begat so-and-so, all the way from Adam and Eve down to Jesus. He's the one. The Apostle Paul writes, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. That's this offspring. The prophet Isaiah says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. That's this offspring. In the Gospel of Matthew, the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means rescuer, for he will save his people from their sins. That's this offspring. Again, from Isaiah, unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. That's, that's is this offspring. So we know who is being talked about here, but what is this battle? He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. How is that going to happen? Well, let's look very closely, very carefully at the end of verse 15. You see that word bruise? It's used twice. Sometimes it's translated crush. It's actually a word that has two Meanings. There are lots of words like that, and this verse is actually playing off the fact that this word can mean two different things. It can mean both to lunge for, to go after, to attack, and it can mean to crush. So let me try to illustrate what's happening here. Think of the word beat. That word beat can mean to punch with your fists, and it can also mean to win. So let's just say I have a friend who is a boxer, and he is scheduled to fight a guy next week who has a reputation of landing a lot of punches, but not winning any, any fights. And I happen to run into that guy who's going to fight my friend, and as a good friend, I feel obligated to say to this guy, listen, you may beat my friend, you may land a lot of punches, but my friend is going to beat you. You see? That's the kind of thing that's happening right here. And it's on purpose. It's an intentional play on a word. God says to Satan, you will bruise, you will snap at, you will lunge after his heel, but he will crush your head. And that difference is made very clear by the difference between those two locations. He's going to snap at your heel, or you're going to snap at his heel, but he is going to crush your head. Okay, so we get that. 
We see what God is saying, but that still doesn't answer our question, how and where and when is this going to happen? Well, it happens when Jesus, the Son of God, is born fully human. He lives his perfect life, and then he offers up that life as a ransom for many. He hangs on a cross, and he dies. He's killed, and Satan thinks, I won. I killed God. I can't help but think of that scene in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe when Aslan is tied down to the stone table and the the white witch comes with her knife and kills him and she thinks she's won. And all of her foul offspring, all of those ghoulish beasts and they're gibbering and howling, they think they've won. But no, three days later, Jesus is alive. Jesus, in his death and resurrection, absolutely crushes Satan. His power, sin, his greatest weapon, death, are both defeated. Friends, forgive me for that reference to Aslan, if that threw you off, because this is no fairy story. This happened in history on a hillside known as Golgotha, in a garden tomb, both of them just outside the city of Jerusalem in the year A.D. 30, both of those events well documented. That's where the decisive battle took place, and it all got started the night Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So it's no wonder that Satan incited King Herod after Jesus was born to go and kill all the babies in and around Bethlehem. He knew, Satan knew who that child was. He'd been expecting him ever since this interaction with God in the garden that we read about in Genesis 3.15. You know, sometimes Bible scholars refer to Genesis 3.15 as the proto-evangelium. The proto Evangelium, the beginning of the good news. The first whisper of the gospel. You see, what we see here is that God will not set aside either his, his holiness or his mercy. God will not have his holiness disregarded. He won't say regarding Adam and Eve's rebellion, well, let's just not to worry too much about that. But neither does he set aside his gracious purpose for man. And that is the only ground of our hope. See, after God pronounces judgment, not just on the serpent, but on Adam and Eve, he drives them out of the garden to now live in this experience of their broken relationship with God, this strange, different, heartbreaking separation from God. And if it weren't for this thing that God has said, they would be completely without hope. Alienated from God. Stunned by this new, strange, horrible reality, having ruined their experience of fellowship with God that they were made for, thinking, what have we done? But there is this word from God. A little tiny light shining in all of that darkness that they now cling to. The first whisper of the gospel. It's so interesting how Genesis 3 ends. Not just interesting, it's very instructive. Look at the end of Genesis chapter 3, down at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, 
Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever in this state that he's now in. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that moved, that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I mean, clearly God is saying to Adam and Eve, you're not coming back in here now. That fellowship with God is not possible now, and it's guarded by this majestic, powerful angel, this cherubim. And that is the way that it will be. I mean, when God has his people build a tabernacle and then later a temple to represent his presence among them, there is in that temple a holy place. And in that holy place, there's a place called the Holy of Holies. Only the priests could go into the holy place, and they couldn't even go into the Holy of Holies. Only one priest, one time a year, representing God's people before God's presence. And guarding that Holy of Holies, you know what was there? It was this thick curtain. And do you know what was embroidered on the front of that curtain? Cherubim. Guarding the presence of of God behind that curtain. When you read things like that in your Bible, you should go, oh. And then, we read in the Gospels that when Jesus hung on the cross at the very end and cried out, it is finished, we're told that the curtain in the temple with its cherubim on the front was torn wide open from top to bottom. God making the statement, it is now, once again, based on the work just completed out there on that hillside, that Satan-crushing work, it is now once again possible for you to enjoy fellowship with God, real fellowship. Someday perfect fellowship, but real fellowship now. Because the offspring of the woman has defeated Satan and accomplished God's plan of rescue and provided the way for people to be brought back into fellowship with God. Friends, when I see things like that in my Bible, these connections from that cherubim guarding the garden to the cherubim embroidered on the curtain and what that curtain represented to that curtain being torn wide open from top to bottom to the picture in Revelation of man enjoying fellowship with God in a new heaven and a new earth and the tree of life is there. I tell you, something wells up in my heart and I realize that I just can't quite fully comprehend the goodness and the mercy and the kindness of God. Friends, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God is whispering, have hope. Something is coming. Someone is coming. So God's people, all through those generations, were expecting, they were looking, they were longing, waiting, because of this promise. Repeated by God to people throughout the Old Testament, there is one coming who will be born of a woman, a human child, yet sovereign over Satan. So, what is this to do with us, with you and me, this morning? Let me try to answer that in closing. This story 
is the story we're in. Every one of us, every human being who's ever lived, this is the story that overarches everything. This is not just the story of some kind of time period or some geographical location. It's the story of humanity, and we're all in it. The effects of that rebellion and God's judgment on it affect us all. The beginning of the story brought about a situation for all mankind where we stood in desperate need of help, and there are times when for every one of us we're aware of that within us. We know something isn't right. And into that situation that we're all in, to us, God speaks this word of hope. Don't despair. There is one through whom I will rescue and redeem. It's an announcement that is designed to give hope. And when you've laid hold of what God has promised and what God accomplished, I'm I'm getting a little ahead of the story right now, but when you lay hold of what God promised by turning in faith to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, everything changes. Yeah, your life's still going to go on. Everything is different. You might, in fact, you will still deal with grief, but not without hope. You'll rejoice, but you will rejoice in hope. The ingredient that will be present in every situation in your life, if you've been joined to Christ, is hope. Because of this story, God's story, carried forward and brought to absolutely successful completion by Jesus Christ whose arrival on the scene is what we celebrate at Christmas. Just a faint whisper here in Genesis 3. We're not told much. There's not much detail here. But what we do learn is that there is one coming who will bring victory and who will rescue us from Satan and sin and death. We read this, this verse early in Genesis, and if we're clued in at all, we want to know more. Our hearts are hungry for more about this coming one, and God has more to whisper into our waiting ears. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for the way that you've presented it to us. Thank you for what it tells us both in its grand, overarching theme. And thank you for telling us so early that we have every reason to hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God, I pray that you would help us to put away lesser things, silly things that we can put, tend to put our hope in. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And so God, in these weeks, as we anticipate the celebration of coming of your Son, I pray that our hearts would be rightly warmed and worshiping 
and our minds would be fixed on Christ and we would find ourselves so full of not just, oh, I hope so, but a firm and solid hope in what you've done for us through Jesus. God, draw us in. Draw us in. We're listening. We pray in Jesus' name.